Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Chris Crass. Chris is one of the leading voices in the country calling for and supporting white people to work for racial justice. He's a social justice educator who writes and speaks widely on courage for racial justice. He also writes on feminism for men, lessons from past movements, and creating healthy culture and leadership for progressive activism. Chris works with community groups, schools, and faith communities to develop leadership and momentum for social justice action. A few other highlights from Chris here. He helped co-found the Catalyst Project, which is an amazing anti-racist group. They're based in the West Coast, right, Chris? Is it? Yeah, the Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. And Chris also helped launch Surge, the white anti-racist network, which is showing up for racial justice. And he's written a couple of books, including Towards Collective Liberation, which is a book about anti-racist organizing, feminist practice, and movement building strategy. And he also wrote Towards the Other America, Anti-Racist Resources for White People Taking Action for Black Lives Matter. And this is the second time we've had Chris on the show, the first being in September 2018, which seems like 40 years ago. So, (laughs) Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, my God. So good to be here. And yeah, 2018. I mean, yeah, it feels like that was a couple decades ago or something. We were so naive and innocent back then. I know. My gosh. 2018. All right. Well, for folks who don't know, can you give us a little bit about your background and how you first got interested in the work you're doing today? Yeah. I mean, so the seeds, you know, oftentimes like in my life, my late teens and 20s, kind of coming into political activism, you know, people, it's a common question. It's sort of like, you know, what brought you into it? And, you know, I would say, okay, it was like my, you know, became best friends with a socialist, anarchist, you know, punk rock activist kid in high school. And we got involved and, you know, basically we were kind of like, okay, let's make social justice activism, which included, you know, anti-racism of like fight the Klan, fight the Nazis, you know, feminism to the best that we were able to articulate it when we were 15 in, you know, anti-capitalism and social justice. You know, we were kind of like, let's make these kind of socialist, social justice values the coolest thing possible for teenagers all in our area to be involved in, you know? So like that became a major driving force. And, you know, we were pretty successful of like getting like, you know, dozens of uh, high school students at multiple schools involved and go, you know, political protests. We organized study groups, film nights, driving people out to larger protests out in growing up in Southern California, out in Los Angeles. So we were doing all these kinds of things. But then, you know, you start thinking about the seeds and the seeds that really were there so that when I became active in high school, it just took off. And it took off in part because I grew up in a mostly white working class family where just the economic misery of capitalism was expressed. But the way it was often expressed was through racism. And so I grew up in a family, you know, people talk all the time about how, you know, white folks don't like to talk about race makes white people really uncomfortable. And so I was with a you know family where there was white folks that talked about race all the time, but it was racist. 
But my mom would argue back. She'd say, no, that's not right. That's not true. And she'd, you know, then they'd shut her down with misogyny. And, you know, but she would argue and she would say that that's not right. And what was really important was both my mom, want, you know, she just morally and, and politically needed to disagree. But she also knew that there was a dozen white kids, my brother, my cousins, myself, who were all sitting around these tables, you know, coming together over and over and over again in these kinds of family discussions happening where racism was just being spoken constantly. So she knew that all these young white kids were just growing up where that kind of racism was being normalized. And so she was not just trying to argue with my uncles and my grandfather, but she was also trying to speak about a different kind of worldview, an anti-racist worldview for all these white children who were sitting around listening. You know, and that that had a huge impact on me, both in terms of my thinking, but I think just had a really Im big impact on a recognition of how important cultural shift is, how important it is to not only argue against racism, but to try to bring a positive vision of liberation into the lives of our families, our communities, and into the lives of our children. You know, I got radicalized around anti-racist organizing and specifically organizing in white communities when the Rodney King verdict happened in Los Angeles in 1992. And that shook my world. So me and my friends, it was a multiracial group, mostly white, most overwhelmingly working class, some, you know, Asian American, Latinx students, you know, and one black student. And that's part of the segregation, cultural segregation, physical segregation. I mean, in the town that I grew up in, up until the 1970s, there was laws on the books in the housing contracts. These houses cannot be sold to a black person. These houses cannot be sold to a person of African descent. And so when we think about our childhoods, when we think about our experiences of who we knew, what relationships we had or didn't have, the structural institutional impacts of legislation and policy profoundly impact us. And so the Rodney King verdict happened. And for the first time, yes, we were united against the Klan and against the Nazis, which was very important because they were actively organizing young people in our area. So that was important. But when the Rodney King verdict happened, this multiracial community of young people with my friend who, you know, Terrence, one black you know, person in our, our whole crew leading the way, started openly talking about institutional racism and kind of more of the everyday experience of racism in our friends' lives for those of us who are white and we had no idea. And so that just blew things open. And from there, that opened up a trajectory of the importance of both multiracial, explicitly multiracial democratic liberation organizing, but a strategy within that of focusing on building anti-racist power, anti-racist analysis, anti-racist leadership, anti-racist capacity in white communities to then be a part of multiracial movements in significant ways. Which city did you grow up in? I grew up in Whittier, California, which is part of Los Angeles County, Richard Nixon's hometown. And, you know, it was also Whittier. It's named after John Greenleaf Whittier the white abolitionist Quaker. And so there was kind of this mix again, and I think that really demonstrates the kind of contradictions that are present in so many white, majority white communities. So you have a, a town that is named after a 
white anti-racist abolitionist poet and heavily Quaker influenced. And then Richard Nixon, you know, I mean, he comes up in the Quaker tradition and, you know, it becomes who he historically is known to be. And so the different kinds of trajectories, the different kinds of histories and conditions that are there in white communities. So I could overly focus on just how messed up, you know, Richard Nixon is and how messed up communities are that produce Richard Nixon or Rittenhouse or these guys who, you know, were just convicted of murder in Georgia, the conditions that produce the racists. And that's important to understand. But for me as a white anti-racist organizer, I want to think about what are the conditions, the possibilities, what are the things that can help create as many white anti-racists as possible and help them be effective in helping make the systemic and cultural changes that we desperately need. One of the things I really want to get into with you is one of the challenges I found in my life is this is sort of the trajectory of my anti-racist sort of belief system has been asleep for many years, just not understanding racism, waking up, realizing how much harm I was causing and like systems, systems of oppression and like how it's all embedded and racial capitalism, and then sort of retreating so much to a place of almost effacing myself of like, wow, white people are just we've screwed everything up, like we fucked everything up. And so I just want to make space for everyone else. And the problem with that, however, is that I'm not actually showing up in a way that like, I'm not rooting in my own power. And this idea of power is is very, you know, very problematic, obviously, with white people, but it's sort of not an authentic way to show up. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how do white folks in this anti-racist movement who want to move towards co- collective liberation think about power in a way that's not like white supremacist systems, like institutional power, but power in like a liberatory, like how do we root into that authentic liberatory power that we need to, that's a very fine balance. I'm curious if you have any, any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about, I mean, this is the sweet spot of liberation possibility within white communities being a part of multiracial movements to all get free. So, I mean, what you're talking about right now, I mean, this is both, I think, political analysis. I think about praxis of like theory put into practice, into action, drawing out lessons from that and a praxis where we create a culture where we're constantly evolving and learning and trying to under make sense of this stuff. You know, so what you're talking about here, I mean, this is like, Again, like the political analysis, but I mean, there's also a certain, like for me, it's a spiritual journey as well around just like, how do we come into a wholeness and a sense of the fullness of our humanity that breaks free from the nightmare of what supremacy systems have turned our people into, have turned us into the way that we've been pitted against people of color, the way our ancestors, you know, for the vast majority, for my ancestors, for the vast majority of us, you know, our ancestors were recruited out of poverty, out of their own experiences of having been colonized in Europe in the process of building up kingdoms in the Middle Ages, but then the development of capitalism, which then destroyed the spiritual and cultural practices of most of our indigenous peasant societies in Europe in terms of more of the pagan spirituality, earth-centered spirituality, 
the witch burnings that went after and targeted and destroyed women's leadership as healers, as spiritual leaders, as leaders in the community to create rituals and rhythms that were balanced with celebrating the earth and celebrating life. And so the witch burnings, the colonization in Europe, these things, and then our ancestors, for many of us, being recruited out of poverty to then go wage wars of colonization against indigenous peoples of the Americas, to be members of what then became the slave patrols, to discipline and watch over and attack enslaved African people who were freeing themselves and escaping slavery. So all these things start to manifest in the ways that our humanity, as, as those of us who have been racialized as white, has been so deformed, has been so impacted. And so, yes, it's crucial that we read you know, things about white privilege and the ways that European indentured servants were given access to citizenship in exchange for and as rewards for abandoning relationships to people of color, abandoning relationships to indigenous communities, enslaved Africans. And so that deformed humanity that came along with the privileges of citizenship and access to political rights, economic opportunities, like the housing that I was talking about in California, where it was like, this is white only. Not only white only, but after World War II, low interest rate subsidized housing for white families. And so all of that is true. And I bring all this stuff into it because it's like, it's not just a thing of when you say I was asleep, you know, I think about, you know, I can bring up this reference because, you know, there's a new Matrix movie coming out. So I think about like the first Matrix movie when it's not, it's not that Neo was asleep. It was that Neo was purposefully plugged in to maintaining a ruling class power that he was not even aware of. And his life force, his essence was going into maintaining this ruling class power that he had no idea even existed. And so when we say that white people were asleep, there's yes, that is true of white people looking away, white people not paying attention, of people of color protesting and white people not listening. That is absolutely true. And as an organizer, I also think about what are the ways that capitalism, what are the ways that white supremacy as a power structure have actively supported resourced white people to stay unconscious, to stay illiterate, to not look, to not even see, to not be, not just that you don't see what's happening, but you have been so malnourished of the history of this country. You have been so malnourished about the true history of the black freedom struggle that you see protests and can't even make sense of it. It's referred to as riots. It's referred to as, you know, these are people who are just trying to get a free handout, who didn't work hard like our, pe- like our people did. All- so it's not just that you don't see, but that capitalism and white supremacy have given white people frameworks to understand the world that maintain this whole power structure, which sucks. This power structure sucks for the vast majority of white communities and white families who then, you know, in my family, it was, okay, we're going to go after and direct our anger and our resentment against black people, against undocumented immigrants, while simultaneously complaining about the destruction of union jobs, 
the lowering of wages, the money that is being no longer put into the public good of parks and hospitals and schools, but blame all of that on people of color. And people like W.E.B. Du Bois, people like James Baldwin, people like Bell Hooks have long told us from the Black freedom struggle, white people, you are being used. You are being given the psychological wages of whiteness in exchange for multiracial democracy, economic justice, healthy, vibrant communities. You are being given this false sense of superiority and racism as your daily meal to keep you complicit, to keep you plugged into the matrix. And so when you wake up, you're not waking up for most of us who are white, you're not waking up with a bunch of access then to really vibrant liberation frameworks, analysis, tools, ways of plugging in. It's like waking up to a nightmare and realizing, oh my gosh, I've been a part of this thing. And people who look like me have done horrible, murderous things to people of color. And now I feel horrible and I'm enraged and I want to go tell every white person how racist they are. And I just want to scream and I want to break things. And I also feel horrible about who I am, about my people, about my ancestry. And I don't know what to do, but I'm angry and I'm enraged. And then you start going into what you talked about of this like guilt and shame where there is this deep, deep grief of who am I? Who am I in this society? How have my hands, my body, people who look like me's hands and bodies been turned into weapons against people of color that have committed unimaginable horrific violence and have been complicit either consciously or unconsciously. So that going into guilt and shame and, oh my God, and I just want to like retreat. I just want to blend into the wall because I don't want to keep causing harm. You know, I think a lot of white folks want to just like, don't know what to do. And so, but know that they can cause harm, but don't know how they can rock it for justice. And so my experience of doing this work was coming into multiracial organizing with some really incredible visionary leaders of color who were clear that I needed to figure out and people, white anti-racists like me needed to figure out how to bring in large numbers of white people. Not just like a couple of dozen super hardcore white anti-racists that have read every book, gone through every training, and are totally committed. Like that, I, un I understand that. And it's important that we have, you know, what you could call like cadre, highly trained, educated, and usually oftentimes self-educated or going through social justice, political education, you know, to learn about these people that I learned about through social justice education is like, the people behind me, um, I got posters behind me right now of like, you know, Angela Davis and Audre Lorde and James Baldwin. Like, I didn't know who those people were growing up. That history was not given to me. So when I got access to that history, and then I also started learning about white anti-racist leaders like Anne and Carl Braden, Howard Zinn, Zelfia and Miles Horton, these white anti-racist leaders who also gave me inspiration for who I could become and who I could look to for leadership and inspiration and guidance. You know, so as white people, you know, you come into consciousness, you feel horrible about who you are, and then 
being able to truly rock it for justice though. So for me, I was like, yes, we need these like hardcore cadres of dozens of white anti-racists, but we also need hundreds, thousands of white people who are just trying to come in and figure out how to plug in and do the right thing. And so having mentors of color who were like, yes, we need the super dedicated white anti-racist, but we also need hundreds of thousands of white people to vote against these anti-immigration laws that are coming in California on the ballot. We need hundreds of thousands of white of just white people who at least get it enough about racial justice that they're going to vote, they're going to support progressive people of color leaders, that they're going to do the right thing enough that we can start to make significant changes legislatively, policy-wise, elected official-wise, culture-wise. So for me, my orientation has been we need to figure out, yes, there's times in multiracial organizing, or especially with the Black Lives Matter movement or after the election of Trump, of people of color only organizing or people of color or Black-led organizing to understand the importance of supporting those spaces, respecting those spaces, trying to support in solidarity or volunteer or donate money or do what we can to support those spaces of powerful Black leadership multiracial BIPOC leadership, and to also build the capacity and the resources for dynamic white anti-racist leadership that is rocking it in white communities to bring more and more white people into multiracial democratic social justice values and action. So to bring that kind of leadership, to show up, to be effective, and within multiracial work, it's you know building the relationships, building the trust, but also oftentimes in multiracial organizing, white people being able to find their place. And again, this is often through relationships, through, through building trust with folks to be able to bring power in those spaces too. I know a lot of white anti-race, including myself in multiracial organizing of folks of color being like, yes, it's important that white people don't come and try to take over or you know, white people don't undermine people of color's leadership. And again, when it's appropriate, sometimes it's like BIPOC only leadership or only black leadership in this space and other folks can be in solidarity and work as accomplices, as allies or whatever that framework is. But there's also times in multiracial organizing where it's like, we need folks to throw down. And so if you've got skills, if you've got leadership, if you've got some things to bring to build power, bring it. But again, that's through the multiracial work. That's a lot of like building trust, building relationships and being able to figure it out. So there's supporting powerful BIPOC and Black leadership spaces and organizing. There's the multiracial work of relationship building to figure out what is appropriate space, what is appropriate power, what is appropriate leadership. And then there's white anti-racist space in white communities where white folks need to take up space. The racist white folks are the ones taking up space in so many white communities. White anti-racist and that taking space in white communities also includes amplifying the voices of black leaders, BIPOC leaders. So, so many white people who I've worked with, they have no idea about the black liberation struggle because white supremacy does not want white people to know about it, embrace it, see it as part of their own freedom struggle. And so being able to be a white anti-racist leader doesn't mean just like taking up space in white communities to bring a white anti-racist voice or perspective or worldview. That's a part of it too. And that's important. But to then also be a bridge into history, culture, leadership, 
from liberation movements and communities of color. So it's this both and, and it's dynamic. And I understand it takes time. It's not something that just like, some of this is really counterintuitive. You're a white person who wants to be anti-racist. It seems really counterintuitive to think, I actually need to figure out how to build my liberatory power to rock it. Because the first impulse is more of this like, oh my gosh, white people have had so much power, white people shouldn't have any power. But what, what most white people who have had power, it's been a capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal power. We don't want that for anybody. So we need liberation, socialist, social justice, white anti-racist leadership that is helping to bring white communities into this broader multiracial movement. And so again, what that looks like, how that looks is nuanced, but it's not so complex that we can never figure it out. It does require white folks to support, mentor, help bring in more and more white people and support other white people in figuring this stuff out, as opposed to a capitalist individualistic model, which again, we're ingrained in that so many of us who are white are thinking about, am I doing it right? Am I reproducing inequality? Am I being anti-race? And so being able to think the I is important for a while. But then we need white anti-racist leaders who are thinking about the we. Yes, being in conversation about my own practice, but also thinking about the practice of tens of thousands of other white people and wanting to support them to rock it as well. So it's not like every white anti-racist is on their own trying to figure this stuff all out. That's not how we build power. That's not how we build movements. So the more that white people can be thinking about how can I not try to distance myself from other white people, but actually move in closer, nurture, support, develop an eye for anti-racist possibility in white communities, not just an eye that sees the racism in white communities. Because an eye for racism in white communities will find racism everywhere. And so, yes, we need to be able to critically see the racism in white communities to work against it. But we also need to develop an eye, an ear, a heart, for the anti-racist potential in white people, in white communities, so that when a white person says five messed up things, but one thing that's on point, we help expand that one thing on point and help it grow and grow where their analysis then deepens, as opposed to only focusing on the five things that were problematic. We try to build on the one to multiply it into the next time we're in conversation. They've got two things that are on liberation point. Then they've got three. Next thing you know, they're starting to get involved. Yes, we need to be aware of and challenge the racism in white communities. Absolutely. But we also want to help white folks engage in liberation movement in a powerful, positive, impactful way. And so we need to also be able to hear the anti-racist aspirations of white people because white supremacy has given white people A thousand ways to be racist, a thousand ways to say super problematic things, a thousand ways to look at the Black Lives Matter movement or BIPOC indigenous led movements for sovereignty and see those in totally problematic ways. White supremacy equips white people to be super messed up. So we as anti-racist folks who are working in white communities need to start finding out ways to give white people hundreds and eventually thousands of ways to be anti-racist, to be showing up in awesome ways for justice. Damn, that was a good answer. (laughs) 
I'm trying, man. We got to get our people free. And when I say our people, I mean like white people get free from the matrix where they're plugged in and they're asleep and they're supporting this ruling class death culture of white supremacy. And so many of our white people that are consciously a part of racist movements and a part of racist efforts. It's important to differentiate between white folks that are just in the unconscious of like, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing. I don't want to be racist. And they have no idea how to be anti-racist because nothing that they've experienced has helped them to become anti-racist. So you don't look at white people who don't want to be racist and just tell them like, oh, you got to figure it out. Or, oh my gosh, you've got so much white fragility. I can't deal with you. Folks of color can say that because it's like they're focused on their like building power, doing their own work. But for white anti-racists, the white folks that don't want to be racist but don't know what to do, those are our people to organize. Those are our people. And then we try to convert and engage and transform as many of the white people who are consciously racist into multiracial racial justice values and culture. Because again, a lot of the white folks involved in racist stuff have no other exposure to any other places that create a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, a sense of home. The ways that the, the Klan and the Nazis and the Republican Party and just mainstream capitalist politics tell white people, you can find a place of meaning and home here. So white anti-racists, we need to figure out how to give white people that sense of purpose and meaning and belonging in anti-racist values, in liberation values, and eventually in multiracial democratic movement and community for beloved community. You know, I think I 100% agree. And I, I think one of the hardest things of the journey you described is that years zero to five or one through five were all about learning about what I was doing wrong and what other white people were doing wrong and then being really angry about <laughs> at other white people. And so it actually takes what you're speaking to is actually moving. And maybe that's a little bit what's going on with the reactions to sort of like call out or woke culture, which is like this sort of, I mean, a lot of it's right wing talking points. But I mean, there's some level of like, many of us, including me have been stuck in this phase of the best way to address racism is to like call it out and call out white people as opposed to building any bridges. You know, it's basically call it out and like try to support folks of color. But what you're actually pointing towards is a much more difficult and much more mature, I guess, position on like what building movements, which is like, what are the pieces we have in common and building from there, which I think is, is very rare. And you talked about the cadre or the people who, who are already on this anti-racist movement, the people who are talking in that way, or it's like a pretty small group who are talking about building bridges at this point. I'm curious for any thoughts or reflections you have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think, again, it's like both and. And like different situations call for different things, you know? And so sometimes, you know, I think especially with the election of Trump and just the unleashing, the public call of like white people, you can be as racist as you want. But whether it is just like spitting racist poison in stores or at schools, not that this wasn't happening before, but it was like a green light was given to like unleash hell, unleash a racist hell in interpersonal interactions. And then the flood of you know racist policy, just amplifying the longstanding. Again, it's not like Trump created white supremacy, but just that Trump accelerated and opened up for racist right wing politics to just flood. 
And so in times like that, it's like, yeah, we need to be just calling stuff out because there's so much going on. And with the Black Liberation Movement on the move, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with BIPOC organizing, really deepening and becoming more powerful and fighting back during the Trump years and continuing to fight now. There are times where it's like, okay, we're not going to do the slow, long organizing in white communities. We need to throw down as much as possible in the George Floyd uprising because it's time to move. But again, it's a both and because like with the George Floyd uprising, like that created years, years of white anti-racist organizing, years of leaders of, I mean, leaders of color have been at the forefront of white anti-racist analysis development in terms of people, you know, whether it's Bell Hooks, whether it's James Baldwin, whether again, it's like, you know, Ida B. Wells, you know, who I have a picture of behind me, who was an incredible leader with the anti-lynching campaign and just really had intersectional analysis in the early 1900s. You know, black liberation leaders have been at the forefront of talking about how white people are being used by white supremacy, how white people need to be a part of the movement for multiracial democracy. So, I mean, the black liberation movement has been on the forefront of trying to help white people get free from the nightmare of white supremacy. So there's been years and years of this kind of organizing in white communities. And George Floyd, his murder, and then the murder of Breonna Taylor here in my hometown where I live in Louisville, Kentucky, the massive uprising and millions, millions of white people joining in powerful black-led uprisings all over the country in small towns, rural areas, big cities, all over the world. And so that kind of work is incredibly important. And so in those moments, it becomes like an all hands on deck. And it's like, yes, we got to throw down and just call out racism where it exists. And we got to support black leadership as much as possible, BIPOC leadership as much as possible. But when there's enough of us, instead of it, there's being like a dozen white anti-racist cadre, which I love the cadre. And I was like trying to help build up the cadre as much as possible because we got to start somewhere. And by cadre, I don't mean like the folks that are like just calling out white people. Like that's like the early days. I mean, cadre who are like, I am a person who is committed to liberation. I was racialized white by this fucked up system. And that turned me into something that pitted me against people of color. I am a human who wants to get free, and that means understanding myself as, as white in this racialized system so that I can be a part of breaking free, not trying to escape and create like a little like island unto myself where I like go and I'm just like, I'm not racist and I'm all good and I'm over here on my island. We're not trying to create islands of liberation values. We're trying to create ways in which we build power to transform the society while also building alternatives in the process and in implementing our values and vision, all of that. So with the George Floyd, we have all these folks throwing down. And so we're also, this is a time when things are in motion to start inviting white people. Like I talked with my neighbors who had never been to a protest before, my white working class neighbors, they had never been to a protest before. And when people were marching in the streets here for Breonna Taylor, justice for Breonna Taylor, justice for George Floyd. This was a moment of talking with my neighbors who we already had lots of conversations about social justice values, but now was a time to invite them and not just invite them of like, Hey, you should go to a protest, but like, let's go together. Let's like your kid and my kids, we're going to drive together. The kids will be talking with each other in the backseat about the protest. We're going to go. I'll be there with you because when you're an activist, you can forget about how intimidating it can be to first go 
to like a protest and kind of be like, what are we doing? And, and how do, what, like, what should we do? And just, but so actually being able to support people to participate. So cadre, when I think about cadre, I think about people who are like, we want to get free. We want to bring as many people into movement as possible. We want to be strategic. We want to be heart and mind, eyes on the prize. And then these moments of like the both and, it's like when we have enough of us where there's like white folks that are like, I'm 100% committed to supporting black leadership, trying to you know volunteer, raise money, do what I can to support black-led efforts. Awesome. And you got white folks, you know, who are like, Let's really try to do deep educational work in white communities. Let's do door-to-door voter outreach, like what happened in Georgia with Surge, working in Georgia to engage working-class white voters or non-voters or folks that hadn't voted in a long time, but to engage white folks in this kind of more long-term organizing. But sometimes it's not so long-term. It's like, okay, for the next six months, we're going to throw down on this campaign and try to make some major victories. But we can do all these things. It's not about like an either or of like either you do this over here and support black led organizing. And maybe you're a part of a group of 20 white anti-racists that like really do a lot of solidarity, support, volunteer work with this black led organizing. Or you're like a white person who's doing this like white anti-racist work, deep dive community work in white communities. It's like we got to build up enough of us where like this, all this different kind of work is happening simultaneously. And so that's why, you know, building up something like Surge, like Surge chapters all over the country, you know, many of them are able to do this both. Okay, both we're going to like throw down and try to like raise money or do uh, throw down on, okay, there's this black led campaign. We're going to like volunteer. We're going to show up. We're going to take on roles. And I don't mean volunteer. Sometimes it means volunteering like, okay, we're going to do the childcare. We're going to provide food. We're going to do, you know, whatever, you know, which is awesome. But also volunteering sometimes is like, okay, can you take on a role of helping to coordinate an aspect of this work? You know, so I don't, I don't want to box us in to like anti-racist formula of two plus two equals this. You have to play these roles. Things are nuanced. Things are, you know, what goes down in a small rural town is really different than what goes down in a big urban city in a blue state that has, you know, a blue state urban city that has a massive infrastructure of multiracial social justice organizing where there is longstanding black and BIPOC leadership, where there's different kinds of organization. You have a whole ecosystem of social justice infrastructure, culture, relationships, leaders. And I'm not trying to say like it's all like awesome and perfect, but I'm just saying there's a lot to navigate. I know a lot of folks that are working in small towns, rural communities where there just isn't a lot of infrastructure. It's not like you can be a white anti-racist and be like, okay, I'm going to go find the BIPOC-led community organizing projects. So, I mean, there's a lot of white anti-racists that have helped build up what then became BIPOC-led organizations over time or became multiracial organizations with white anti-racists who helped to start the organizations or worked with BIPOC leaders to co-found the organization. So things look really different in different places. And we need to have a dynamic and expansive way of thinking about this stuff that allows possibility. We don't want a politics of anti-racism that narrows the options, that narrows the, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. We want to have an expansive, nuanced, anti-racist, heart-beating 
politics, meaning like it's connected to our souls and our hearts and our, our, our emotions and our lives being at stake in this work, not just this super heady, formulaic, okay, I don't want to, you know, you got to do this, you have to do that, but a real heart beating living politics that opens up possibility for what can be done to rock it for justice. And as long as we only have lists of don't do this, we are not going to develop the expansive understanding of what can we do. And I understand it. The don't do this is super important for many white folks that don't do this is an absolutely essential part of the journey. And you, and you can't skip over that. You need to get the like, don't do this. This is how white folks have messed up. But we don't want to equate that to the totality of what it means to do anti-racist work with white people. That is a component. And that needs to be a component within a larger framework of we want to move millions of white people into liberation movements to end the nightmare of supremacy systems and build up social justice, liberatory, socialist, democratic values and culture and institutions and legislation that transform this country. You know, one of the things that occurs to me that's happening is this one of the challenges for me, at least in white anti-racist organizing, is this concept of comparative suffering and not allowing me or other white people to have like there's the problem of white fragility of like, you know, a white woman or a man starts crying when a black person calls him out, right? Like that's taking up space in a in an emotional way that's actually harmful. And then I think there's the complete flip side of that, which is as a white person, I actually can't be my authentic self because I'm so like, I know that I'm privileged. I know that I have maybe had like generational inheritance when, you know, black and brown folks haven't. I'm maybe cisgender or hetero. And like, so there's, there's actually a way of shutting yourself off of like, I, I actually, I'm not allowed to have any emotions because I have all these privileges and, and compared to what black and brown folks have been going through. And so I'm curious, how do you, how do you actually be a, like an authentic human? Not in like, again, like not crying, not having crying when someone calls you out, but like just being authentic in relationship to this work. That's a deep question. And that's, again, you know, I think what you're, the questions that you're asking, I think are the essential questions for work with white people, work in white communities around both like appropriate space, leadership power roles and then this authentic human connection. So I mean I think so I want to answer it in a couple of different ways. One, those of us who have been racialized white have been messed up by these systems so that our own authentic connection to our humanity is already starting off in a way that is deformed. And by that I mean that capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy want white folks, you know, so I mean, like alcoholism, suicide, drug addiction. I mean, I've had so much of this in my family. And it's, you know, capitalism being like, as a white person, you're supposed to act this way, like Tim Oaken's amazing piece, white supremacy culture, that white supremacy culture is not something that European working class communities just sort of came up with. The white supremacy culture has been a tool of the ruling class to create a workforce a disembodied, mechanistic, turning European people into machines and tools 
for production and capitalism. So you look at that white supremacy culture, and those have been things that have been ingrained in European people to become white. And anti-black racism is deeply connected to the creation of a white identity that serves capitalism. So the lynchings, the violence against black people was always characterized in the sense of black folks who are trying to take advantage of white people, black folks who are, are lazy and trying to get a hand, all kinds of negative demonizing worldviews placed on black bodies, which then makes white people are super productive, white people are self-sufficient, white people work hard, and all these messages that have some positive aspect to them, but also create a white identity that becomes a machine in the service of capitalism because you do not want to be associated with blackness, the blackness of joy, the blackness of oftentimes this anti-black racism that talked about black people, you know, about culture and celebration and pleasure than production. And so you have this attack on blackness, on black culture, this anti-black racism that is absolutely about violence and control of black communities and black power and black bodies to be able to be in service of capitalism. And at the same time, you have this disembodied, not connected to your emotions, not connected to your heart, not connected to your intuition, but connected to this external sense of my value comes through the production, the service, the commercialization and consumerism of capitalism. And so that authentic, how do we become our authentic selves is also our fight against these systems and what they have done to us. And again, that's not going back to your, something you said earlier, that's not about being like, okay, well, these systems have sucked for me. And so that's the same as what it means for these systems sucking for black communities. And so now I'm equating things. We need to be able to have the, the, the sophistication to be able to hold both the reality of what these systems have done to poor and working class and middle class and many, you know, upper class white folks that have been turned into machines too. I'm not, you know, this isn't about, you know, uh, trying to like go after a particular villain. This is about, this is about the destruction of these murderous systems. And so, but it's not about saying, okay, well, there's black suffering. And so then therefore white folks need to only, you know, become emotionless not talk about the ways that this has sucked for us too, but to be able to, and again, you don't go to like a black led meeting on racial justice campaigns and show up as a white person for the first time and say, Hey, I really want to put white suffering under these systems on the agenda. That's inappropriate. That's not what we're talking about. That's why it's important to be able to have these different kinds of spaces in this organizing where there's, you know, there's groups for white folks to be able to process this stuff, but not process it in this way that is like individualize my own personal suffering. And then that leads to individual solutions of, I need to just take better care. That that's important too. the individual solutions, our own individual issues. You know, I'm all for that, but putting it into historical and institutional analysis so that we understand what has been done to whole communities of white people in terms of creating this capitalist culture, this white supremacy culture that is about staying only in your head, not connected to your body, not being able to connect to joy, not being able to connect to a more relational, caring culture, but more of a productivity, you know, we have to serve the ruling class culture. And so that being able to come to an authentic place means for white people to rebel and resist 
what these systems have done to our hearts and our souls and our connections to our bodies and our intuitive power, our erotic connection to what helps us feel tenderness and compassion towards other people, all of these parts of ourselves that capitalism actively works to destroy or turn into commodities that are sold back to us. But then coming into the anti-racism, it's like we could bring that kind of disembodied, the emotional training that we've gotten from capitalism into the anti-racist stuff of like, okay, don't bring your emotions. Don't, you know, just become, I mean, I went through a whole time period in my life of like, I just need to be an anti-racist organizing machine and just like not have my own emotional experience and not really connect to my own need for healing and my own need for being able to experience joy and pleasure as part of my life. But just anti-racist organize full-time, don't connect to you know other parts of who I am. And that leads to you know burnout culture, that leads to an unhealthy movement culture in general. And again, it is like a nuanced thing that we need to support each other around where it's like different spaces can hold different emotional needs. And we need to be able to create spaces where white folks are able to grieve, are able to work through shame or guilt, are able to connect to our rage about what the rage that so many of us who are white should have about having never been told about multiracial democratic justice movements, about white anti-racist role models, about the real history of this country. Yeah, there's like shame about not knowing that, but I want white folks to be angry that this kind of knowledge and education was kept from us, that capitalism did not want us to know these things. And so that authentic humanity is a journey that we need. And again, this requires leadership. This requires culture. And so in working with white folks, I both want to support white people to be awesome in showing up and being part of and supporting BIPOC-led movements and I want to create culture that supports white people to heal individually and collectively from being a part of these systems and what these systems have done to us to reclaim our humanity, to reclaim our intuitive powers, to reclaim our connection to our bodies, our connection to the earth, our connection to loving relationships rooted in justice values, not loving relationships that are on the backs of other people and contributing to this moral monstrosity that James Baldwin talked about. So figuring out how to be authentic humans, I mean, that's like the project of liberation. And then how we create systemic change, that's the other project of liberation politics. But just even for white folks to know, like you're connecting to your full humanity, you're being able to experience a joy and pleasure and a love and a fulfillment and meaning that is rooted in your purpose, rooted in your power, rooted in the beautiful aspects of multiracial democratic movements and the white anti-racists who have been a part of that. To be able to feel good about who you are, to be able to feel good about being able to, to make the best contributions you can and also live a life that is connected to joy and pleasure. Like that's an important part of trying to figure all this stuff out, but it should be a part of what we're trying to create and accomplish. And again, we got to figure this stuff out, but we got to support each other in trying to figure this stuff out. You know, what I really hear and you're reminding me of is, and I'm appreciative of is, I think what you're holding that's maybe missing in some of my own, I, like I intuitively understand it, but I think you're bringing it more clear is, is just sort of the, 
racial capitalism analysis, seeing that, that they're, you can't disconnect what capitalism has done from racism. And I think that that praxis, that framework is really important. And I think it's maybe for me and others that I've worked with often, there's sort of less attention given to the economic system in addition to just white people being racist against each other or, you know, or against folks of color. And there's one nuance though that I wanted to, that I've struggled with is that I'm a little concerned about, even though I do believe there's like problems with the ruling class and billionaires and like, you know, wealthy folks, I'm curious like how we don't otherize them in a way that just generates more anger towards like, it's just another way of generating anger towards a different group. How do you really balance that with like, and maybe what you're pointing to is like, it's the system rather than like this group of people. But I don't know. I'm curious for how you, how you hold that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think it's important to be like, okay, what is ruling class power? You know? And so in not, yeah, I mean, there are times where it's like, okay, like this person is doing this thing and this person is, you know, implementing these policies. But again, if we just replace that person or we get rid of that person, but we don't change the institution. I mean, sometimes, you know, I mean, defeating someone in an electoral campaign is a huge victory. I mean, being able to get a progressive district attorney in Philadelphia, for example, is having really important consequences of moving a progressive agenda forward. So yes, it is about both individual change and getting different people, you know, but again, that district attorney in Philadelphia is connected to a larger justice movement that has been working for these changes for decades and generations. And so he's not just this individual, but he's a part of larger campaigns and organizations and efforts. So I think in our culture, of the capitalist culture, there's just so much focus on the individual that it's hard to hold the both and of systemic, collective, and individual. And so I don't want to demonize, like, we just got to get rid of these individual people or that anyone who has, you know, wealth or is of the 1% or, you know, whatever it is, is like a horrible person. But the ruling class, the ruling classes of whatever kind that want to concentrate wealth and, and power into a small minority at the expense of the vast majority. And then the way that that economic and political power is overwhelmingly throughout history maintained is by getting people who are in different lower, you know, middle class, working class, poor to hate each other, fight each other, blame each other, go after each other, or just be so overwhelmed to survive that there's no real capacity to be a part of social justice movements. I don't want to demonize if you are of a certain income or a certain kind of, you know, if you have wealth that you are a horrible person. All of us have choices, but our justice movements, as much as possible, need to be creating on-ramps and entry points for as many folks as possible to know that a choice that goes towards justice is possible for them. And so I'm so, there's always been wealthy people who have been a part of justice movements to redistribute power, redistribute wealth, create a more just society. Whether that has been folks that have, you know, not just about giving money, which has been, you know, a significant part of that, but actively being a part of movements for economic justice, 
being a part of multiracial movements. And so everyone has a place in this work. Everyone has, a, has ways to contribute that are many different ways of engaging, many different ways of playing important roles. It's a tricky thing to both be naming capitalism because, I mean, white supremacy serves capitalism. It's not like white supremacy. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, they are their own independent systems of how they've existed historically, but particularly in the United States, the development of capitalism, the development of colonialism around the world was rooted in the development of capitalism and the use of and the institutionalizing of white supremacy to maintain power, to concentrate power, to get the vast majority of European people who are working class, who are peasants, who were poor to work and be murderous against people of color or just to be people that are, I'm just trying to you know make my way and improve the lives for my kids. And I'm going to take the free land that is being offered up by the Homestead Act in the US of here's this land for hardworking Europeans because the indigenous people were squandering this land weren't using it, don't know how to use it. And so we need to give this land to hardworking, you know, Christian Europeans as part of manifest destiny. And so many folks are like, I want to be able to give my kids a better life. And so I'm going to go out and be a part of having this free land, which is then furthering the project of colonialization and genocide of indigenous people. So again, it's just all these different ways that this stuff is playing out. And if we don't bring the economics into it, then White supremacy wanted all white people to identify themselves as part of the ruling class, to not see their humanity and shared future with people of color. And so if our anti-racism also equates all white people are basically a part of upholding this system, all white people were passing this legislation, all white people were creating the economic policy that led to generational inheritance. And yes, many white people, working class and poor, fought for racist policy, fought for racist exclusion, fought for ways that white people only would have inheritance, generational inheritance, while you know people of color had not only denied passing on any kind of wealth, but were denied opportunities to create wealth in the first place. And so, yes, it's again, this both and. Yes, white folks in significant numbers have actively participated in racist policy and racist legislation. And most white people had no role in shaping this legislation, in passing these laws. And so we can't just equate all white people as, well, white people created this system. Ruling class forces created this system. White people were marrying European indentured servants and enslaved Africans were marrying each other, forming friendships with each other, forming community with each other, so that ruling classes that wanted to maintain the slave system outlawed those relationships. You don't have to outlaw those relationships if they didn't exist. And so this forced exclusion, this forced barriers to prevent these relationships, because those relationships were troublesome for maintaining slavery, were troublesome for maintaining ruling class power in this country. And so people being divided from each other, people being pitted against each other is the ways that ruling class power operates. So I'm with you and I agree and I'm glad that you brought it up of we don't want to demonize like, okay, if you, you know, the only people now who have 
inherent worth and dignity have to be working class and poor. If you're middle class or if you're upper class, then your role now is to not have a humanity, just you know, go into the background, just donate your money. We want everyone to find appropriate roles, appropriate space, and be in their full humanity and justice movements. And again, that requires us to help people figure that out, to help people get an orientation around how can you be a part of justice movements? And there's, you know, not that everyone agrees about how to do this, but we need to be helping each other out, figuring this stuff out. So I love that there's all kinds of organizations to work with people who have wealth, to work with people who have inherited wealth, to work with people around. And again, not just how to use your money, but how to be fully human in this system. And so just being able to, I think the strategy of lots of different groups and organizations and infrastructure that's supporting people in their own different locations around class, around race, around gender, around sexuality, around ability, around different ways that we are in terms of how we're located in the system. So different ways to resource people, different ways to create liberation values and conceptions of who we can be for different groupings of people in different communities. But then we also have these ways of having convergence of multiracial, multigender liberation organizing. So again, that's both and. We need as much of this as possible. And so that's why it's like, you know, someone who has wealth, someone who's cisgender, someone who's white, someone who's male. I mean, those are, I've got a lot of friends who are organizing, who are all of those things and are both figuring out how to have authentic, awesome, multiracial, beloved community connections, relationships, projects, and are working with folks like them to bring more and more folks who have institutional power, who have inherited wealth, who are trying to figure this stuff out to support more and more of those folks finding their place. So again, I think it's like we're on our own individual journey, trying to make sense of this stuff, trying to read and educate ourselves, getting involved, joining organizations, and as much as possible, thinking about I, but then also thinking about we, and how can we be helping more and more folks come into this, find their place, be in the fullness of their humanity as much as we can, and make powerful, awesome contributions to justice. Rocket for justice. I love how you said that. Rocket for justice. You know, because if you just look for the ways that people suck, you'll find a lot of examples. And I'm not saying that we dull our senses to the ways that things suck. But I remember being in in college courses where so much of our focus was on critiquing things. And that was an important skill, critical thinking, a critical thinking skill of reading things about past movements, reading things about not just systemic oppression, but also about justice movements and developing a critical eye to see what were their shortcomings. How do they reproduce oppression within their work? How did they fail? And so that's important. But as an organizer, you know, I, I would also be thinking about, okay, well, how do we also develop an eye or not just an eye, but a heart, our way of looking at things, engaging things, where we see the possibilities and the examples of the awesome, because we want to build that up too. And so if we just have the eye towards what sucks, we're going to come up with a hundred examples of what sucks every day. And that's important to develop our awareness, 
to develop our sense of, okay, what is problematic? What needs to be changed? What do we need to be fighting against? And then we also need to be developing our sense of what is awesome, what brings happiness and joy and pleasure into the lives of our communities, into the people we care for, and expanding that awesomeness while working for justice is crucial. That's how we build power for winning, build power for what we want, while also fighting against what we don't want and the horrible stuff that's happening. But if we only fight against the horrible stuff that's happening, we're not creating that culture. We're not creating that. that and sometimes that's, that's all we got to do. We got to fight as much as we can against the horrible stuff because it is a flood. It is decimating our communities. But as much as possible, being able to also bring life and energy into culture that humanizes, culture that celebrates, culture that honors, culture that builds the world that we want to live in. Thank you so much for that, Chris. I want to be respectful of your time, and I'm wondering if you have any trainings or events or anything coming up or where folks can learn more about your books and your speaking, anything like that, if you want to shout out where folks can learn more about what you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so my website is chriscrass.org. You can go there for books. There's a, a free ebook download of the Towards the Other America book, which is a lot of interviews with white anti-racist leaders on a lot of kind of similar themes that we're talking about. Like, how do you rocket for Black Lives Matter as a white anti-racist organizer in rural Arkansas, in a small town, rural organizing, working class organizing in Maine? How do you do this when you're trying to organize in a labor union? How do you do this when you're organizing in religious, spiritual communities? You know, how do you do this in lots of different contexts? How do you do it different class communities, middle class, working class. You know, so that is, a, you know, that's a free download on the website. And then as far as trainings, you know, I do work with the organization White Awake, which does awesome online political education. I highly encourage folks to check out White Awake, White as in W-H-I-T-E, Awake. They provide all kinds of really cool online education. And I collaborate with them in particular on a session that is defecting from supremacy, white men for collective liberation to really help provide an online course to support white guys doing as much as we can to both understand the ways that these systems have negatively impacted us, to heal from that, to recover our humanity from that, and then connect and bring our contributions, our energy towards liberation work. So I work with Wide Awake. You can check out their website. You know, I just do training. You know, if anyone out there is listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I, you know, you know, do, I do training with a lot of different groups. Again, with the focus on how do we create culture, leadership, and vision that supports organizations, whether you're explicitly a justice organization, whether you're a spiritual or religious community, whoever you are, you know, who's working with majority white folks contact me through the website. I love working with folks around how do we build the capacity for white folks to rocket for racial justice and to be a part of liberation movements to all get free. So you can connect with me you know, in that way. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
you know, I have to get you on again. There's so much. We didn't even go into like children's books for <laughs> for white anti-racists and, and more like, yeah. you know, creative pieces. But thanks again. And I really support you. And I would double click and support on the White Awake courses. That's where I first found out about Chris and his work. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm so grateful, you know, for the podcast. I'm so grateful for for the work you're on. And, you know, this is all like how we do this stuff together, you know? So like you've said a couple of times about how like, a lot of your anti-racist journey was like in this place. Well, that's like, how do we create culture? And you're being able to share that with folks that are coming in who are newer, you know, about like what's been important about that part of it. And there's also this, there's more to continuing, you know? So this is all, this is about how we create this culture and this, this way of trying to be human, how to be for justice in this world and how we do it as much as possible together. You know, we, care for ourselves where we care for you know our the people we love our you know my kids you know and this i and this we you know and the both and to move back and forth and find strength community and belonging and meaning in that both who i am and who we are and that because of we i can be and because of i we become more powerful and so just trying to figure this stuff out and being as tender and kind and gracious with one another as we can while also being ferocious against systems of oppression and powerful for justice. Amen. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.